0: Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Brittany Allen. And I'm Kristen Eichammer. And back with us today is our good friend, Mary Margaret Olihan. Mary Margaret, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. this is going to be fun. So this episode is out on Leap Day. We talked about last week the reason for Leap Day and Leap Year. And we all, Sarah and Lauren and I, I had to look it up what it actually was but since we actually have a scientist with us (laughs) today in in Kristen (laughs) Kristen remind us why do we do this every four years?
1: Why do we have this random extra day in February? No, thank you for calling me a scientist. That's going to make my dad proud (laughs) but you are a scientist. (laughs) Um, And it's really just the orbit of the Earth. It actually if you go off of how long it takes the Earth to go around the Sun, it's 365.25 days. So instead of having a quarter of a day, I honestly don't even know what that would look like. We just tack it on to one year every four years. So,
0: fascinating. Mm -hmm. So, I'm willing to bet as styles come and go that by the next leap year in four years, the Mob Wife Aesthetic will be long gone and will oh, be a thing of a past. Of I the hope past. not. But right now, it's having a moment <laughs> as fashion trends come and go. So you all can't, can't see us right now, but we all decided to wear our coats today that are somewhat Mob Wife-esque slash pop collars <laughs> and put on sunglasses. <laughs> but what do you all make of this trend? Is it your style to kind of lean in? And first, let's establish what is the Mob Wife aesthetic? How would you describe it? The Mob Wife
2: aesthetic. First of all, I think it's funny because it got popular on Instagram because people started saying this is the new aesthetic. And <laughs> uh, what it is is like big fur coats, uh, aggressive makeup, lots of bling, potentially on the tacky side, honestly. And I love it. I am here for it. I love to dress like this.
1: <laughs> it
2: does kind
0: of feel like dress up. To me, there's it this does. Where like oh, I feel like a five year old girl being like oh, don't I look cute? It was so yeah. fun
1: getting dressed this morning, but I think for <laughs> for what I've seen out there, it's black, black, black mm-hmm. texture and then a print, like a bold print. Uh, so like the animal print, yes, yeah, yeah cheetah,
2: or really any any animal print, but like different textures, yeah. Which honestly is kind of how I dress a lot of the time, anyways. So I yeah. felt like you've just
0: been you've been doing it since before it was cool, maybe. I right? have Virginia.
2: We <laughs> shared an office for a long time you know i've
0: seen you <laughs> <laughs> no you have a very classy but also bold striking look which plays thank well thank you it's, very it's, um, much a look that doesn't die kind of
2: you know it's classic and i've tweeted about the mob wife aesthetic maybe like once mm-hmm. and of course my some of my male followers were in my replies like oh do you want to be a mob wife and like get beat up by your husband and we're being like <sighs> all like very taking it very seriously but I think it's funny because we definitely do glorify this mobster mafia side of things. And I am happy, too. I love The Godfather. I (laughs) love any kind of um, Boston mob movie. I'm here for it. So, Mob Wife, yes, please. Thank you any day.
0: I think there's a fascination with it, right? Like, it's an interesting point in history. Obviously, the mob is, I think, smaller than it used to be, but it's still around. Like, it's yeah. still very much so We could exists.
2: still be mob wives. Well, so. no. Totally. Very market, we're
0: not going to do that.
2: <laughs> I still have hope for us for doing it.
0: Oh, <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> well, before we derail even further... <laughs> Uh, put your fur coats on and let's go ahead dive into today's show. Kristen, what do we have
1: queued up? For sure. Up on today's problematic women, the transgender movement has ruined the bodies and lives of many young people. We pull back the curtain today on how this has happened, and we explain the true costs of an open border. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to
0: find those stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called
1: feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a reviewer rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference.
0: All right, let's get to it. A very exciting day for our office because on Monday, after over a year, right, of hard work, Mary Margaret, (laughs) you launched officially announced your book, D Trans True Stories of Escaping the Gender Ideology Cult. Mary Margaret, this is your first book. How does it feel to be a book author?
2: It's kind of crazy, actually. Yeah. I Very surreal. I've always loved writing, and I've been a little nerd about reading and writing ever since I was a little kid. And my sisters joke to me because we love little women. And in oh. it, Joe says, I'm an author. Oh. <laughs> and so when I got home from work on Monday, my sister Teresa was like, you're an author. Oh, that's, that's so cute. So cute. But um, yeah, no, it is it is kind of a dream come true for me to have written this. And especially on such an important topic, yeah. I say in the introduction to my book that I got the idea to write this when I was I was living in Arlington and I was making dinner one night in this like little tiny kitchen I had. And I was listening to a Twitter Spaces event with all these detransitioners. And at the time, I didn't even know what that was. I just knew these were people who had tried to transition and they were just talking about their experiences on the Twitter Spaces event. And so I'm literally like making myself chicken listening to these people and I couldn't tell who whether they were male or female in some cases because their voices mm-hmm. sounded so different. So there was one person talking with a very very deep voice who revealed that she was a girl, but the hormones that she had been taking had messed up her voice permanently and so she was mm-hmm. going to sound like that probably for the rest of her life. And I was listening to these people talking about their experiences and how the hormones had wreaked havoc on their body and on their emotions and even mentally what it had done to them and this was in i want to say 2020 or 2021 and i thought oh my gosh this is going to be huge yeah and it has been and more and more detransitioners have spoken up and so i'm so grateful to the people in my book who talked to me for so many hours over and over all of last year to help me write this book and to share their stories because they're so important. And that's that Chloe, Prisha, Luca, Abel, Helena, all these individuals that I talked to. Their stories are real. They're not made up. It's not fictional. It's not you know right wing conspiracy theories. It happened to them, yeah. and and they're really important.
0: Well, and it's been fascinating. For me, because I've gotten to see sort of little windows into your writing process because we share an office. <laughs> and so there would be times when, you know, you were reaching out to someone to try and see if they were interested in telling their story for the book. And there was moments where, you were just sort of pausing at your desk and were obviously very overcome by the emotion of it all it's such a, a weighty thing to dive into and to hear these stories how has that process been for you of kind of finding grace or finding mental peace in the midst of sharing these really intense stories
2: yeah that's what thank you for asking that <laughs> that's it ha- was hard and, you know, I think that what what really helped me was that their stories were the experiences that they had lived. Yeah. So it might be hard to hear, but also they had literally lived through every single mm-hmm. one of these agonizing or traumatic moments. And it was an honor to have them share them with me. And in some cases, you know, they would become choked up on their end and become emotional. And I would as well. And I I remember last summer I was finishing the book at my parents' house and I was in the in the dining room and I have a lot of siblings so I would tell them like you can't come in here because they're younger and this is like a very serious topic and so I would finish an interview with someone and think oh my gosh like I cannot believe this happened to them and I was like so emotionally drained And I would leave the dining room and it would just be like my family, like happy and kind of silly. And I was like, wow, I'm so incredibly blessed. So Mm. it was emotionally draining experience, but I think their stories are so important. And my hope is that people can read the book and think, oh, this isn't some, you know, this isn't someone saying why I should think a certain way. This is literally just facts and stories. And I formed an opinion about this based on their real lived experiences rather than what she's trying to tell me. Yeah.
0: So I want to give a quick warning and disclaimer to our audience because I would like us to, I I don't want to give too much away because people need to buy the book and read it, which it's available for pre-order now and officially out May 28th. 28th. Okay. Get it wherever books are sold. I think it's important, though, to get into some of the details of what someone's body goes through Mm -hmm. when they transition and detransition. So if you're listening with kids, young people, maybe consider skipping ahead a little bit because- I want us just to have a really honest conversation about what actually happens. So Mary Margaret, maybe just give us a preview of one of the stories that you shared. Walk us through the process, the surgery, what's happening in someone's body to someone's body when they decide I'm going to transition, quote unquote, transition mm-hmm. to the opposite sex. And then wait a second. No, I'm going to detransition. What's the state that their body is right. left
2: in? Well, I'm going to speak a little generally so I don't give away. Uh, yeah, please the... don't. Give give too much away because yeah. I think we're we're doing an official book launch, media tour in May, mm-hmm. um, which is exciting. They're exciting, <laughs> but problematic. Women gets the scoop. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. When what often happens, and I'll I'll just speak a little generally here. Let's say that uh, your daughter decided that she believed that she was actually a boy. She would probably have gotten this idea from social media. She may have been spending a lot of time online and seeing pictures of other girls uh, who are very, very beautiful, or you know you'll anything on Instagram we see nowadays the women are very sexy, they have amazing bodies, they have perfectly flat stomachs, but the most curvy you know figure, mm-hmm. and everything looks perfect and unattainable and perhaps your daughter has been exposed to pornography and seen that women are treated very very aggressively and violently in pornography. And she may be afraid of being treated in that way and think that, okay, this is this is what sex is and this is very scary to me and I don't want any part in that. That combined with these images of women online, she might be thinking, oh my gosh, I can't live up to that. Mm-hmm. That's the unattainable for me and that's scary and I don't want it. And so with that, she might look around and think, okay, well, what is there for me? What what should I be trying to be? Where can I fit in? Where can I be unique? And if you do any kind of searching for that kind of identity online, what you will be told is, oh, you don't fit in. You feel like you're not a woman or you are you don't like those body standards. Well, guess what? You might actually be a boy. Yeah. And maybe you just are sad because you've been a boy this whole time and you didn't know it. Mm-hmm. And so if that girl, if your, your hypothetical daughter uh, has your permission or doesn't have your permission, she can embark on her own gender journey where at school therapists will affirm her. Teachers will affirm her unless she's at a very specific school where teachers are committed to not doing that kind of thing without parental consent or committed to not doing that kind of thing in general. And what happens when you begin taking hormones for a girl, for example, she'll begin taking testosterone and we get into this very uh intensely in my book but it changes you physically and it also changes you emotionally a lo- bunch of the girls that oh. i spoke with could not cry when they were on testosterone Are you serious they couldn't cry and they described not being able to cry as this like intense physical experience where like they would know that they needed to cry nothing would happen.
0: Mm. That's
2: crazy. And they described it as this scary, very intense, like, moment of, like, needing release there, and, and it wouldn't come. And it messes, oh, testosterone messes with your voice. Some of these girls couldn't scream anymore, still can't scream anymore. Wow. One girl can't sing, or she couldn't sing. She's slightly regaining her ability to sing. Okay. Physically, you grow a lot more body hair, and, you know, right. it is, like, alarming. You also lose hair. So, you know, more body hair, less hair, head hair, your bones change, your yeah. muscles change. You get a lot more thick up mm-hmm. top, I would say. Body composition kind of changes. And then unfortunately, the girls who undergo a sex so-called sex reassignment surgery typically will get their breasts removed in a double mastectomy. And that is something really sad and horrific that we get into in the book. I especially made sure to talk to these young women about their last moments before they went under, what their experience was like, who took them to surgery, whether they talked to the surgeons at all. And and you know, I really wanted people to be able to picture themselves in their shoes yeah. as in these last moments. And I'm talking about girls a lot because this is a phenomenon we're seeing more with young women. Mm-hmm. But of course we do talk about young men in the book as well, particularly Abel Garcia, who is a detransitioner, and a few others. But Abel, we really focus on his story. And Abel did not undergo bottom surgery, thankfully, but many men who identify as women and are trying to go all the way will get bottom surgery, which is incredibly graphic and incredibly painful and invasive where not to be too graphic, but their penis is basically removed and the tissue from that organ is used to construct a fake vagina. And obviously, this can't actually be accomplished. It is not a biological reality, and things don't work. Yeah. But they're told that they will potentially maybe, and they're given instructions on how to make things work and how to like keep things functioning. And it is a horrible, horrible, sad lie that these men are being sold and living with. And my friend Brandon Show Walter has actually done a lot of work on this topic where he'll describe in really graphic terms exactly what these men are living with when they undergo this surgery and it it is unfathomable and it is it is living agony and my heart goes out to them that they're being sold this lie so you know this this <laughs> we went down a very <laughs> intense path here for a second but i think that something that i've learned from many of the people that i've spoken with is These transition procedures are sold to people as this will make you happier. This will make your life easier. And that could not be further from the truth. Mm -hmm. You have medical bills until the day you die. It literally hooks you up to the medical system for the rest of your life. Often, you know, with the hormones that you're getting delivered every couple weeks or so. And then with the impacts of the surgery, that's pain that you're living in for a long time. Some of these girls still have open wounds from their double mastectomies uh, that still are leaking things. Mm-hmm. And and I'm sorry to be disgusting there, but like that, it's that the is reality. a reality. Yeah. So they all shared with me that they deeply regret what happened and they feel betrayed by the medical community mm-hmm. for telling them that this would make them happier and for telling their parents that this was the alternative to suicide for them. Because that's what parents are told. Do you want a dead daughter or a living son? And of what parent is going to hear that and think, oh, my gosh, I want a dead daughter. Like, no, yeah. no one thinks that. Mm-hmm. So the, the hope is that people will read these stories and understand that they're being lied to, that so-called gender affirming care is nothing more than an activist plot to, frankly, to butcher young people and to hurt these already hurting young people that need mental help rather than surgery or hormones. Yeah. What was the, um, the age range, if you can share that, of the people that you were interviewing? So I purposefully focused on young women who had transitioned or tried to transition mm-hmm. in their teens mm-hmm. or in their early 20s. There are a lot of detransitioners who are older, like Walt Heyer mm-hmm. is a good example. He's someone that I know either Daily Signal or Heritage has interviewed him. Um, And he does amazing work. He's a man who a long time ago thought that he was a woman and tried to transition and underwent surgery and I believe like facial reconstruction and different things to try and look like a woman. And then realized many years later, oh, I can't. Obviously, this is not possible. He's actually married now to a woman. And I saw him here in D.C. recently with his wife. And they do work to help detransitioners to Mm -hmm. understand that transition is not the end and that there is life after transition and they can help other people who have gone through it, which is really beautiful. But Walt Mm -hmm. is from a different generation of Mm detransitioners. And I thought that it was important to focus on the young people who have been going through this lately Mm -hmm. in the age of the Internet and therapists, very, Mm -hmm. very woke therapists, teachers. This is a phenomenon that is very much accentuated by the past decade or so of woke policies and woke medicine. And so that was my focus.
0: Wow. Mary Margaret, I just want to applaud you for your courage <laughs> and your boldness. Because for what, I mean, anytime you take on writing a book, huge commitment. But to do it on a topic that is not only so serious, but you're being a voice for people that need to have need to have their voice shared and in defense of generations to come. Like, this has to stop because it's such an abomination yeah. to young people who are vulnerable. And what young person doesn't go through questioning of identity and exactly. who am I really? Yeah. Like? Every young person goes through that. And for some, it's more intense or less intense, but it's something that's like, oh my goodness, who's being the voice for these people? Who's standing up and correcting the lies and bringing truth and... And letting them know that this isn't the way and there's alternatives and reminding an entire generation of what the truth is around this. So thank you for being that voice. It's incredibly powerful.
2: Thank you for saying that. Yeah. I'm just hopeful that it will reach some people on the other side of the aisle that might not have paid attention to, you know, there's there's lots of commentators and researchers that are much wiser than I. But I was excited to do this because as a reporter, you can tell stories and you don't need to be the smartest person in the room. You can just tell them. And so that was this has been a blessing to write. And I'm really hoping that it reaches the right hearts. Yeah.
0: Well, for anyone who has read your reporting, they know that you're a phenomenal storyteller and you do a great job of getting all of the facts and also elevating and fully putting on display someone's story in their life. So I'm incredibly excited to read your book.
2: Thank you. And also, I'll give Virginia a little plug. Oh. Um, Virginia is mentioned in my book a whole bunch of times oh. uh, and for her work. Um, specifically in the last chapter, which I don't know how much I've gotten into that yet, but we'll talk about that
0: later. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Mary Margaret. Very excited. So again, it is out May 28th, but it's available for pre-order now, And we're going to be continuing on Problematic Women to promote the book because it's great. Thank
1: you. Yeah. All right.
0: Well, stay tuned because up next, we're going to talk about another issue that is plaguing our society, our country, and that's what's happening at the border and specifically how the mass influx of illegal aliens entering our country is affecting communities. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment, but In the meantime, the Network of Enlightened Women sees the challenges that conservative women are up against on their college campuses, from liberal professors to finding friends on campus, it can be a really lonely place to be a conservative woman on your college campus. So this is what inspired the Network of Enlightened Women's president, Karen Lips, to write her new book, You're Not Alone, The Conservative Woman's Guide to College. Readers will get to know more than 20 college students and alumni share their stories of real instances on their college college campuses, how they navigated them, and practical advice. With these stories, Lips identifies problems on colleges and provides practical tips on how conservative young women can thrive in this environment. This college guide covers the many struggles and real-life situations that college women face, whether they're a freshman or a senior. Empowering these women will help them to become, help you to become more effective advocates for conservative ideas at your college and afterwards. You're Not Alone, The Conservative Woman's Guide to College is available now for purchase on Amazon. You can buy a copy for yourself, your daughter, granddaughter, a friend, a cousin, anyone who is in this college environment right now and really struggling of what does it look like to be a conservative woman on my liberal college campus. To learn more, you can visit the Network of Enlightened Women website. That's enlightenedwomen.org. Again, it's enlightenedwomen.org. And you can also, again, find the book on Amazon.
1: All right. Well, another another topic that's just going to get everyone all excited and happy. <laughs> we started happy. That's why yeah. we
0: start happy so that then we can depress
1: everyone. We'll post a nice photo on Instagram. It'll be fine. Keep yeah, it on. Yeah. <laughs> Stay hopeful, guys. There is hope. Um. But I, I'm sure y'all have heard this before. Every state is a border state, and this could not be more true with the story that I found. The state of Massachusetts mm-hmm. actually was just exposed for budgeting around $64 a day per migrant in food costs. So if you do the math, that's approximately $448 a week. And I don't know about your grocery bills. Mine have definitely gone up with inflation, as I'm sure everyone's have. But That's a little more than what I'm paying every week, like significantly so. Significantly, yep. Yep. And if you look actually on, I don't remember what website exactly, but if you go online, look up average income, there is a .gov that says a family with children and it breaks it down by number of children and a, a family with seven children can spend in the low three hundreds, but the average cost of consumers is higher two hundreds, like two seventy I think I saw. A week for two seventy a week for food, yes, thank you. Units. That was something I was terrible at in biology and (laughs) chemistry. But a huge difference in the hundreds. We're spending 448 on on migrants, and, and that's like a huge gap between the average bill. Um, yeah. If we break that down, the state is looking at spending about $16 for breakfast, $17 for lunch, and $31 for dinner. It's a nice dinner right there. Oh, I, I know. As a <laughs> Factor subscriber, little plug, they're a great food group, I spend $12 on meals. And honestly, yeah. like we made a video. Go check it out. It's on Heritage Twitter and Instagram, we made a video. You'll see the kind of tangible look at a grocery shopping cart in Costco. It, it was hard to fill because $448, that's like almost half a thousand dollars. Like that's almost, yeah. that's a car payment in some cases. For real. Yeah. Like I'm just thinking of all the things that could cost that much. I think you. it's insane. I'm spending that
0: every single week on one illegal aliens one. Food, food budget in Massachusetts. And I
1: think they said they had about 20000 So do the math. I can't right now, but that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. <laughs> a lot of taxpayer Ta- yeah, dollars. Yeah, exactly. Taxpayer dollars. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's insane. I don't know if you guys had that amount of money. I did kind of a little analysis and went, you know, online. Didn't actually order any of this because, like I said, girls on a budget. But <laughs> um, if you go to Starbucks with $16, you can get a bacon sausage, an egg wrap, a birthday cake cake pop, and a... Pistachio latte Mm. with that sixteen dollars. Starting the morning off strong, right there. That sounds like a a birthday breakfast. Honestly, (laughs) you could get a ten count at Chick Fil A, the Chick Fil A minis with a Mm. side of hash brown and coffee. Uh, Let's say you're not much of a breakfast person, you can go out for lunch and get a chicken bowl with guac from Chipotle. (laughs) I I like. I'm gonna do this one day and film it so everyone can see. (laughs) But you can get chicken sandwich, large fry, large drink, a cookie, and a small mac and cheese from Chick Fil A for seventeen bucks and dinner. Um, that I'm not $31 sure. Thirty-one dollar budget for dinner. I'm not sure where you guys would spend it, but where I would go is the Cheesecake Factory, <laughs> <laughs> and I would Fair. get a chicken marsala, and you got just enough for a drink. So, wow, lots of options. Yeah. Oh my gosh, who is doing this on the reg? Because I'm certainly not.
2: <laughs> insane. It's, it's insane. It's yeah. insane.
0: It's completely insane, and I, it just shows. Thanks, Kristen, for breaking this down, because I think we hear it's costing taxpayers so much money when you have these mass influxes of literally thousands of illegal aliens entering cities, specifically sanctuary cities. These are leftist run cities. But then to actually see the breakdown of, wait a second, you mean my tax dollars are going to give an illegal alien $64 a day on food when... Like, right now at the grocery store, I spend about $64 a week, give or take, on what I'm actually spending at the grocery store. Not eating out, but grocery store. Like, and they're getting that every day? Wait, what?
1: It kind of shows you how messed up the government contract world is because... It's all that's also part of the problem, right? Like, government yeah. contracts cause prices to increase because the government is an unlimited money-making machine to anyone that's pitching to them. Right. Uh, I saw that at Space a lot. And, you know, good for them for figuring out that model. But, I mean, not really because
2: the taxpayer and all of those people are, are on the hook for paying it. Mm-hmm. Right. No, it makes me angry thinking about, you know, I grew up with a lot of big families. And they budget so much mm-hmm. to make sure that, like you know, they might have like 10 kids and they'll have spaghetti a lot. Because they want to make sure they can make ends meet, and so you know their kids are eating spaghetti and meat sauce a couple nights a week, which is I personally think is good. But uh, <laughs> love it, not everybody likes it, right? Yeah. And, and and those families are struggling to make ends meet and making different sacrifices, and then meanwhile we're giving. Migrants this much money every single day to pay for like this is like a a rich young white girls' diet basically privilege a privileged if you will. young white girls diet yeah and and your Starbucks breakdown made me laugh, too. <laughs> but seriously, for seventeen dollars for lunch, you could go to any nice restaurant yeah. and have like a a good meal,
0: oh yeah, yeah, absolutely well, major shout out to Breitbart for breaking this and mm-hmm. actually doing the digging to find it, and I think we owe so much to. Those investigative reporters that are pulling back the curtain on this and saying, OK, this actually isn't a political issue. This is just no matter who you are, you look at this and like this isn't sustainable
1: and it's also not Legal. It's yeah. Like, Should I go cross the border and come back and say, like, oh, <laughs> $64 a, oh iPhone plane <laughs> tickets? Like, the, let yeah. me go on yes, vacation please. and then you can feed me. Yeah.
2: yeah. The iPhones that I saw some of the migrants in El Paso had were bigger than mine. I have
1: yeah. a, a cracked yeah. iPhone. Region. Does the government want to replace uh, it?
2: Same. Yeah, actually.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, I really need to do it. It's pretty
1: bad. But I mean, you look
0: at the, the effects. You have these very practical day to day effects. And then, of course, we have the massive tragedy effects where we've just seen down in georgia where a young woman a college student on the uga campus lake and riley was murdered by what we believe the suspect the lead suspect is an illegal alien from venezuela who entered the country was detained and then was released Mm -hmm. was just released into the u.s because they didn't have capacity to hold him because of the numbers coming in that are being allowed to come in And unless something changes, this problem isn't getting resolved. We're going to keep seeing these tragic effects.
1: Yeah. I mean, Georgia is just yet another example of how every state is a border state. And what's particularly scary to me is I went to school an hour away from there. Like, I ran on running paths similar to what Lakin probably ran on. And she's a 22-year-old, right? Mm -hmm. 22-year-old nursing student. Blunt force trauma is what killed her people. There was a police report, and I believe there was video footage, but this might not be totally correct, of him dragging her to a field. Mm -hmm. And after only her roommate realized she went for a run, couldn't find her, didn't know where she was, it was getting late, she finally called the police, only by them going and, like, scavenging i forget what the technical term of that is but going Dragon. on a, y- yeah. yeah they finally found her yeah mm. the heartbreak And sadness, this 26-year-old whose brother also committed crimes. I just, first of all, there's a criminal reform necessary there if he was in jail. Second of all, like, what are we doing? And Mm -hmm. also, if you look at Biden's response, he gave three sentences to this woman Mm. that was killed by someone who shouldn't have even been here.
2: Three freaking sentences. Mm. Are you joking? Oh, my gosh. It's tragic. It's so sad. And I have a friend that was covering this and was emphasizing to me this was so random like this could be any girl yeah and, and today in, in our country, when we have such an invasion of our border, it really could be any girl. Mm-hmm. And that's what scares me. You know, I my sisters and I all run mm-hmm. all the time. You know, I have a sister in college who's on a college campus, which seems to be a particularly dangerous place for young women to be lately. Yeah. And due to our immigration policies, this, this really could be any of us. And you
0: think about college campuses, they're supposed to be these places where you feel safe as a young yeah, person. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, no, like there's law enforcement. You know, every college campus has security yeah. guards. And you, know, if you have those call boxes. You can push the button if you feel unsafe. But it's supposed to be sort of this insulated area right. where you have the freedom to learn. And like you said, Mary Margaret, like how many of us now and you know in college even you know late at night you're like oh it's fine I'm on campus it's safe like I'll run out and yeah. mm-hmm. go yeah. for a jog or whatever and now it's we're hitting this point where it's like wait a second I have to think twice because crime is on the rise and the whole dynamic is shifting and at the end of the day, it's like, okay, well what else do we expect? You don't vet hundreds of thousands, millions of people entering yeah. the country. And okay, let's say even what there's even one percent, even half of a percent are criminals. Well, that's still a massive number right. that you've just allowed into your country. And so the, you, know, you can say, sure, many of these people have good intentions. They just want a better life. OK, but only half a percent
2: have poor intentions. Well, now you've just endangered hundreds of thousands of right. Americans. Right. And we already have a problem here. I know Coley Stimson has done a ton on this of the lack of prosecution mm-hmm. of people who are committing yeah. these crimes. Kristen, you might have said this already, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty sure this guy had already been convicted of something else and let out early. Yeah, he mm-hmm. was in
1: New York, and he had been let out um, uh, on child at,
2: endangerment yeah, under right, 17. Was, yeah, so oh already proven, to, he should have been behind bars. He right, and, behind bars. and this is not the first case of this happening, which is why is so insane. We've repeatedly seen migrants who were arrested for something else, convicted of something else, let out early, and then they go, go back out on the streets and they literally kill or, or rape or do something something horrible and unthinkable, and we don't learn let from it, mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: it's sad. It's sad. And, and if I can leave you with anything, mm-hmm. it's this administration is not going to take accountability in those three sentences that they had to, you know, give condolences. Uh, the last thing they ended with was given this is an active case, we would have to refer you to state law enforcement and ICE. So right now we've got Kemp and Biden, you know, pointing fingers, mm-hmm. pay attention, pay attention to who has actually stood up for the American citizen. Right. And, yeah, I mean, stay safe. You have to keep your head on the swivel. It's sad. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. absolutely. All right. Well,
0: we started upbeat. Then we got into a little bit of depressing content. (laughs) But we're we're going very depressing (laughs) content. We're going to end upbeat. But. First, Mary Morgan, I want to say thank you so much for being here. Again, congratulations on the book. We're so Ooh, excited. Thank
2: you so much. Yeah. And
0: thanks for having me, ladies. Yeah, yeah, so fun. All right, well, stay tuned because up next, we not only crown our problematic one of the week, but we have a very special conversation with her. So stay tuned. We get it. With big media bias, it's hard to find accurate, honest news. That's why we've put together the Morning Bell newsletter, a compilation of the top stories and conservative commentary. To subscribe, just head to DailySignal.com slash Morning Bell subscription or visit DailySignal.com and click on the connect button at the top of the page. Now it is that time once again, our favorite time of the week here on the show. Time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to Elizabeth Tabish, a.k.a. Mary Magdalene from The Chosen. So uh, if you've listened to the show before... You'll know I'm a big fan of The Chosen. I drive everyone a little bit crazy. <laughs> I'm like, you should watch it. It's so great. But Mary Magdalene, the role of Mary Magdalene, played by Elizabeth Tabish, is honestly one of the characters that really got me hooked on the show. She does a phenomenal job portraying this beautiful character that we know of in the Bible and the uniqueness of her story and what she goes through and her relationship with Jesus is just absolutely stunning. And so I was so excited that yesterday I actually got to sit down for an interview with Elizabeth to hear about what it's like to portray this character from the Bible and bring her story to life, what it's like to be a woman walking around with 13 other men, Jesus and the 12 disciples, and just what this experience has been like for her personally. So without further ado, let's go ahead and roll that conversation with Elizabeth Tabish from The Chosen in this exclusive Problematic Women interview. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining the show today. It's an absolute joy to have you with us. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I would love to hear from you what your first thoughts were when you first learned I'm going to be playing the role of Mary Magdalene in this show called The Chosen. What were you thinking at that point?
3: (laughs) At that point, it was not the show we know it is today. (laughs) Um, At that point, it was, you know, uh, pretty much a web series. It was going to be released on an app. And we were only uh, slated to to shoot four of the episodes for season one. I don't even think the last four episodes had been written yet either. So it was just—it felt more like a pilot, you know, mm-hmm. like this a pilot few episodes, and it was in the middle of nowhere, Texas, and <laughs> you know, it was—it was just a new project. And I, 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 as an actor in Austin at that time, it was really familiar. It was like you know, you 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 always get these auditions. You usually film a, a pilot, and it, it rarely, if ever, gets picked up. Um, So I tried to like keep my hopes in check for it. And it was also during a time in my life where I was uh, trying to quit acting. I I just was not very Mm -hmm. successful. So I was like, I need to to do something more practical. So it was sort of like the last audition that I was going to do. And when I got the scripts for the audition, I think that's when I knew I was like, this is different. There's mm-hmm. something really special about this, the way it was written, the fact that it even opened up uh, the whole series on a woman's story, and the way it's done was so clever and so honest and relatable. I just thought I'm like, this does not seem like a typical story about Jesus, you know, the way it's being told, it's really relatable, really human. And so I I knew from the writing I'm like this is different and then you know you get on set and you're hoping it's going to be, you know, great and it ended up just like every step along the way just kind of exceeded my expectations and, you know, yeah. <laughs> so when I booked it, I was I was thrilled and and very excited to get to work on something so unique.
2: Yeah.
0: When did it become clear, okay, this is going past 4 episodes. We <sighs> are in this for all 7 seasons and oh. I am in this for all 7 seasons.
3: It was such a gradual change over time because at first it was, you know, it was crowdfunded, so we were relying and waiting on how how our audience was reacting and and if they would donate or if they would invest. And over time, you know, we finally got those last four episodes of season one. We we did that, and so we had a complete season. And then it was kind of slow for a little bit. I think it was like a year and a half, and COVID hit, and so we we're. I I just thought, I was like, well, it's going to be a long time since, and, until we get to come back, and. You know, I I kind of accepted the fact that like it was a really cool season, and that's what it was. Mm-hmm. And then, sort of out of nowhere, we we picked back up uh, for season two, and. And then, you know, that was, that was wonderful. We had a new location and it was like just slowly growing. The cast was growing. And then I think it was during season three where, you know, we had a new set in Goshen, not in Goshen, in um, Midlothian, Texas. Mm -hmm. And um, it felt like we had like a new home, you know? And so it felt, and we had a studio stage and uh, it felt like we were becoming established as, as uh, an entity and, and then you know you never know what happens like things keep changing things have changed so much i i i feel like when i found out about the come and see foundation and seeing how they were helping the the production expand and and translate into all different languages i th- i think that's when i realized i'm like this is actually we have we have a trajectory here we have a goal and it's the seven seasons and I knew that, you know, we, we were told, like, we're slated to continue filming throughout the entire, you know, the story. We, yeah. we get finished the story. So it's just been, like, over so many years that, like, a little bit of good news here and there. And then suddenly now it's – we get to, you know – I think, celebrate the the success of it.
0: Yeah, truly, truly the success. Well, obviously, season four, the first three episodes of season four are out in theaters now for anyone to watch. And it's been so fun to watch the character of Mary Magdalene just progress and change over the past three episodes and then first three of season four. And it's been fun to see you and your role bloom and blossom. And obviously The, the Chosen is so unique and then it is highlighting these women in the story of the Bible. But so many of, of the scenes, are you interacting with all these guys, all the disciples with Jesus? What is that dynamic like for you as you're acting Often with 13 guys, especially in the first season where you were often the only woman in the scene and playing off of all of these men.
3: Yeah, I recall the first season and how like Mary is one of, and at that time, it wasn't the 12 disciples that had been Mm -hmm. called yet. There was, it was like, I think half of that. maybe maybe half. But from the beginning, I mean, all these dudes are awesome. (laughs) They're so (laughs) sweet. And some of them are like my best friends. And I think all of us really caring about the project and really caring about telling the story well and um is i think the the sort of basis of those dynamics i think over time everyone's gotten their chance to sort of like have their character's moment or their character's storyline and it's so they're all such uniquely gifted actors and i feel like i've gotten to to watch them and learn so much and Earlier on in the seasons, I I really relied on some old habits of acting techniques, which were a little self-abusive and a little like you have to put yourself in a bad emotional state in order to portray it. I guess it would be a sort of method acting. Mm -hmm. And over time, I remember actually the exact moment where something clicked in me was uh, the scene with uh, Matthew and Simon in season two where... I'm drunk, they come and find me and I was so nervous about doing that scene. And I remember the moment where I I realized, oh, I don't have to hurt myself to do this. I can just rely on the other actors and connect with them and be moved by them. And wow. there's like a few lines from Matthew from from Paris that felt like he was speaking to me as Liz as a friend and i was so deeply moved by it that every take i realized oh there's a there's a new way of acting for me which is trusting <laughs> instead of having to rely too much on myself it's trusting on one god and the situation that that, that it's going to unfold the way it's meant to unfold and i'm going to react the way i'm supposed to react but also these wonderful actors who are so present and so there and so generous with their focus, that I can just sort of like lean into that and trust that and really allow myself to be surprised with each take, with each moment. And so it's working with a lot of them, Jonathan too. Oh my goodness. Like it's really, I think pushed me out of my comfort zone as an actor and into a space of more spontaneity and I think more fun and more trust.
0: That's so neat. That's really special to discover. So in that process as you're figuring out, okay, how do I portray this historical, biblical role of Mary Magdalene? What has that looked like for you? How much are you working with the director, with Dallas Jenkins to say, okay, I think Mary would have acted this way in this situation versus you have liberty to sort of shape that on your own, working with the writers and so forth?
3: There has been, I think from the beginning, a a real trust in the writers. They know these stories so well and- They have such a heart for these characters that I knew that even if there were some scenes where I'm like, I don't quite feel this. I knew that maybe they needed to happen for (laughs) the overarching story for Mary. She goes through so much too. She goes through such depths and pain and sorrow and fear. And then also such joy and redemption and I remember Dallas mentioning uh, during season two, he was like, we just, we didn't want her to like be redeemed. And then everything's easy. Everything's good. And everything's like, she's just kind of trotting along with the rest of it. Like she still is a, person and still may struggle with certain things. And I loved that they created these other tensions or kind of showcase these realistic other tensions that would create a dynamic within her where she is still a relatable person, still growing, still learning from things and learning from mistakes even. And so, yeah, so so whatever they've written for me, I'm usually excited about and usually just trust that like this is a necessary component of telling Fully fleshed out human story, mm. um, whether or not that's a historical figure or not. I think you know her character is so rooted in her deep love of Jesus. There's there's always that to to lean on.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. certainly been my favorite part of watching The Chosen. Is you see yourself in the characters? Like, oh, I can relate to that. You're human. You're not these almost like angels living on earth. Like, no, these or, are yeah, these people. saints
3: and like y- you know the the stained glass or statues. They're yeah, yeah. Well, we've heard that a lot of of people are like, I, I see myself in this character. They're also, you know, they're we meet them before they are before they meet Jesus. You know, we meet them before they are transformed and changed and growing and learning. So they're gonna be relatable. Yeah, <laughs> you know? of course.
0: Have you had a favorite scene or episode that you filmed so far?
3: Oh, there's so many. It's so hard. I, I feel like I feel like there were a number of scenes in season two that that were really pivotal for me and, and sort of mm-hmm. life changing or at least perspective changing, which is life changing. And one of them is is that scene with Paris and Shahar. The other one is with Jesus uh with Jonathan when we're in the tent and I come back and have this sort of reconciliation that is so sweet. At that time too, I was like I don't think I'm good enough to play this character, oh. mostly like a good enough actor to play this character. And so it was hearing those words felt very relieving and you know, you just have to start with your heart. And so I've kind of used that as my like my starting place for this show. I love oh my goodness, and I can't even talk about it <laughs> the details, but there is a scene, a sequence of scenes in episode 7 of season 4 that mm. I'm so thrilled about getting to do. It was A beautiful scene with a really one of my favorite actors and one of my favorite characters. And I can't share any details about it, but (laughs) but we got to do something really different. And we got to kind of look at things from a different perspective, even within our character. So it was, it was, it was a, yeah, it was lovely. I can't wait for people to see it. Oh, I can't wait for that. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait. How
0: does Mary Magdalene, how does her character evolve even more in season four? Would you say? Obviously, not giving any spoilers.
3: Sure, yeah. You know, season three, we see this sort of tail end of her holding on to shame from her past. Yeah. And Tamar kind of calls her out. She's like, Jesus forgave you. You need to forgive yourself. And so we see this sort of gradual shift in her near the end of season three. So when we pick up in season four, I think she's like, she's getting getting there. You know, she's, I think, very, more at least more confident in her place in the group. And she feels like she belongs. And Those doubts are sort of have been silenced. And so there's less tension within her, I think, which allows her now to kind of be an observer and watch what's occurring around her and be there for the people that are going through maybe grief or pain for the first time, because she's already experienced a lot of that sort of pain. I think she has a unique perspective that she can share with others of, you know, a sense of patience with things and maybe even just accepting the mystery of of all of it, of life and of death and of grief. And that there is, there's a reason behind things that we don't always get to understand from our, you know, limited perspective. So I think her pain from her past has really it's allowed her to be, I think, a good friend and, and really be there for yeah. other people that are going through it this season. Yeah.
0: yeah, so beautiful. Well, Elizabeth, thank you both for joining today, yeah. and thank you for your role. You are a big part of how I got stuck on the chosen <laughs> in that scene in season one when Jesus calls your name, and I remember watching that and sitting on my bed and just crying. So it's like, oh, that's what the Lord has done for me—is call my name and just like the resonation of like, ah. Oh, yes, this is this is a show I want to be invested in because it is practical and it's showing real world what Jesus does in our own lives. So thank you.
3: Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That's so beautiful to hear. Thank you. Well, with that, that is going to do it for this
0: week's edition of Problematic Women. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. I had so much fun talking with
1: Elizabeth and I hope you enjoyed what she had to say. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. As conservatives, we need your support in the
0: podcast world. So if you would, make sure that you not only are hitting the subscribe button for the show, but also take a minute to leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you like to listen. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, it means a lot to us. It helps the show elevate so that we can reach even more listeners. Thank you to everyone who's already taken the time to do that. It only takes a few minutes and it really does mean a lot.
1: Happy Leap Day. Happy Calories leap don't day. count today because it doesn't, it doesn't <laughs> happen. <is> today. <laughs> this world doesn't exist. <laughs> it's the Matrix. It's <laughs> totally the Matrix. But have a great week, guys. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation.
0: It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram.
1: We produce Problematic Women in Remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Ree
0: Peyton.